Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazda. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I mean, I did Phil Mancuso today. Phil is a friend of mine, chief investment officer, one of the top lenders in the United States. But we go, we go deep. We talk about his history, macroeconomics, the markets, interest rates, Gucci markets, the Kardashians. I mean, it was it was a super fun. It's a ninety minute show, and he's he's a guy that likes to talk. So uh, bear with us because we both like to talk. But I'm telling you this, like we we go down some crazy rabbit holes from depopulation to uh what's going on in china and more i mean it was a super fun conversation about macroeconomics and and really about entrepreneurism and and the state of the state so check it out hope you enjoy stay tuned guys welcome to today's episode of the greatness machine i'm your host darius mershazne and boy do we have an amazing guest the one the only el presidente phil mancuso is in the house what's up phil Choo-choo, baby. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what, man. I was like, I have to do a show with Phil, man. You are such an awesome human being, and you, you're you such an expert at so many things, and, and I thought we'd have so much fun. So thank you for coming on the show today, my, my friend. Ah, right, boy, you're too kind. You're too kind. Uh, you know, the, the feelings are, are mutual, and... Uh, you know, I, it, any opportunity we have to sit around and BS a little bit uh, and move a couple needles, how do you how do you not be excited about that? Oh man! So uh, I'm gonna do a little bit of housekeeping uh, for people, listeners who are new to the show. Uh, greatness machine is really about two things: it's about people living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And my main man Phil here, here is neither short of passion nor greatness. Um, I want to give a little bit of background because one of the I, I invited you on the show for a couple reasons. Number one is 
Phil is one of the smartest, if not the smartest person I know in the investment world. I mean, like, like you really have a unique perspective on what's happening in the markets. Um, for, we're going to be talking about a lot about the markets because there's so much going on right now. And, um, but Phil, man, you're, you're a funny guy. You, you, you're hilarious. You're super smart and you're doing so much. Um, the way, uh, you know, just to give some background on how I know Phil is, um, I met Phil actually through my work in, I, I do coaching and advisory work. And I started working with a company in Atlanta, Georgia called Equity Prime Mortgage or otherwise known as EPM. And, and so Phil's a stakeholder and he's a chief investment officer there. He's also the president of a company by the name of Appraisal Nation. So super deep in residential finance. Um, you know, for listeners of the show, you know that I we don't talk too much about mortgage, although it's, it is an area of expertise I have. Um, but, you know, I, I told Phil before the show, I'm like, hey, man, you know, we don't, a lot of the listeners in here don't care about mortgage the way we do, but what they do care about is what the hell is going on in the world. And, um, and, and so I, I really wanted you to come in here just so, so we could talk, you know, about what you're seeing. But, but before we go there, I'd love for you to give kind of your origin story. Cause you do have a really unique origin story. You came up in the business world through, you know, some really interesting, uh, really interesting path. And, and now you're doing some amazing things, but would you mind giving us a little bit of the origin story? I mean, are we going like all the way back to when I was two years old? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, yeah, you know. It, it's a a pretty, you know, it, it is a story that's pretty consistent. I think with what you often hear, like if you go to conferences or you know, speakers get up there, and you know, we talk a lot about you know, walking uphill backwards with no shoes uh, in the snow. So at the risk of having some elements like that, and the reality is on balance, it wasn't anything like that. But, you know, I was the first person in my immediate family to go to college. That was far more important for my father than it was for me, because what preceded that uh, was, you know, paper route in fourth grade, sort of worked at the the place to, to have a job in high school, so a local deli. You know, slinging cold cuts and making sandwiches that were way too fat for the owner's <laughs> preference. <laughs> okay, so we're giving away the the profits. That was one of the first uh, one of the first business lessons I learned. Don't make the sandwiches too fat, um, but or maybe maybe you should. And you know, saw this ad. You know, I, I kind of wanted more. Saw an ad in the newspaper about making twenty dollars an hour. This was you know, circa uh, Q1 1988 and answer the ad in the newspaper. And as any good uh, promotion or ad is written, it it wasn't necessarily $20 an hour. You know, it was $6 an hour and $2 a lead in something called the mortgage business, which up to that point, I had a real interest in uh, the financial markets and in stocks, but not really in mortgages specifically. Uh, my parents owned a house, and that's about all I knew about that. And I lived in it. Um, so went there, interviewed long hair, if you could believe it. Yeah, three earrings, because yeah. uh, was in a you know played guitar and all that other stuff into rock and roll and heavy metal. And you know, it's like wow, um, the money sounds great. Work from six to nine, four nights a week, telemarketing. Wow, out of a phone book. And within like four months, I was making five, six hundred bucks a week, working 12 hours a week. Uh, and in 1988 dollars, like that could almost buy you a Lamborghini. But 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and a year and a half later, summer between high school and college, you know, I was like, hey, um, I think I could be a loan officer. And frankly, I think a lot of the sales you're making are because I set them up for your LOs and, and the sales manager agreed. And kind of the rest is history. My first, my first commission check was five figures, wow. August of 1990. Wow. You know, and, and so I cut most classes. I kind of only went, went to Rutgers and I hope no one's listening, but was able to do well anyway. And I really just stuck with it for my dad because it was important for him. Uh, but the reality is, you know, I knew what I wanted. I was sort of hooked at that point. It was as close as I could get to being a stockbroker without being one and having to be one. And I felt like this was cooler. And, and, and yeah, there were, I've, I've never, never, uh, never gotten out of it since. Man. So, so quick question, because, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you're chief investment officer at EPM stakeholder there. And so I, I, I actually, it doesn't surprise me that you got your start on the sales side just because you're a very uh, influential and convincing person. Anyone that's, that knows Phil knows that he is a convincing dude. Um, but, but you, you're now you, you know, you worked your way uh, from, that was an interesting start to the business. And, uh, and, and so you got your start there. I actually kind of assumed that you always wanted to get on into the, the trading side of the business because of your mind for trading. But, but how did you parlay that into getting into the trading side of the business, the investment side of the business, because that's obviously an area where you're making a huge splash right now um, and in your current role and in the, many of the roles you've been doing uh, you know, over the past 10 years. But how did you parlay sales into that? Yeah. So from 88 to 98, it was for all intents and purposes, 100% sales. Telemarketing into sales, into sales management, into um, leading sales for uh, a company. Um, that so my passion for the markets, as crazy as it sounds, really came from movies. Sort of specifically, originally trading places. Loved that movie. Watch it at Christmas time every year, and and wanted to be Dan Aykroyd's character. You know, getting into the Rolls Royce with the butler and that whole, that, like, that was awesome to me. And that's what I wanted. Um, but the selling side really came from the paper route and collecting and trying to get tips. And, you know, I've, and I've said this, I, I believe that everybody is selling everybody, everyone else every day. Yeah. You know, and the examples yeah. I've used as a child, you know, why you should get the candy or, or the baseball cards, not that anybody does that anymore, you know, why somebody should date you or marry you. And then once you have kids, why they should listen to you, why somebody should hire you. So I believe that sales runs through us and all of us almost every moment of every day. Um, somebody's either selling somebody or being sold. Uh, so that part was really, I think, a fundamental part to understanding business. Uh, but, but, you know, always keeping an eye on the markets, you know, I've tried to be opportunistic. Um, and so in that regard, my first really, really, really big break, um, with all due respect to some of the other positions I held before, was at a company called Parkway Mortgage. 
They were a subprime lender at one point bigger than the money store and champion. A sort of little known fact company started by a guy named Brian Moran, who's no longer with us, but awesome guy. And, 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 and probably the second influential guy in my mortgage career is a loan officer named Bill Carroll, who I shared an office, an office with, who kind of took me under his wing. And Bill and I were two different guys in terms of how we sold. He sold more blue collar people. I sold more white collar people and we'd riff off of each other. But senior, I really looked up to, again, very similar background, sort of, uh, you, you know, blue collar background and, you know, kid made good in the finance business, household finance back in the day when there was such a thing. Um, and how that happened was one of the jobs that led to this point for about a six month, one year period was, and I, I was an LO, uh, LO at that company, loan officer at that company had left. And then this new thing called DU and LP came about, which was for those of you who don't know, that was automating the approval process for a mortgage. Right. It was revolutionary at the time. And being this young kid gamer who, you know, sort of Pong to Coleco, to Atari, to ColecoVision, to computing, I wrote some, you know, basic code built computers. You know, I was an, a very early adopter of this new thing that most people resisted. And, uh, you know, just, just long story short, it allowed you to do loans that you otherwise would traditionally not be able to do. People who couldn't qualify. Some crazy things, really stretching the boundaries. And I don't want to get too technical, but Darius knows what I'm talking about. Just some crazy loans. And so did this for a couple of years, became an expert in that uh you know, at a time where you kind of had to go through a vetting process just to use it. And folks, that sound if you're not in the business, that sounds crazy today because just everybody uses, it's ubiquitous. And so I called a branch manager at one of the offices and said, hey, there's this new thing and you guys aren't properly monetizing all of your leads because anybody that has a credit score over X that basically gets thrown out. You're only selling people with low FICO scores. And I think we can monetize it. And further, we can make more money on those loans than you're making on the risky loans. Because this is 98 when we had a subprime liquidity crisis. Right. So that's uh, what long-term capital uh, blew up in 1998. So to your point, that was, I mean, and for people that don't know, that was like the 08 Lehman blow up before the 08 Lehman blow up. It was a massive, it almost took down like the whole world economy, right? A hundred percent. It was, oh, that was the first 08, if you will. Right, right. And so spoke with Brian's son, who we used to call him senior and his son junior, you know, sort of affectionately. He was totally into it. And we ran this pilot program out of a branch and we closed a loan with an extremely high debt to income ratio. And I got a call one day from the second in command, he says, can we really sell this loan? I said, not only can we sell it, I already have a takeout and we're making triple what you would normally make on a risky loan. He's like, when can you come down to meet with us in Kenilworth, New Jersey? 
uh, and if anybody knows the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, I, I, that's in Kenilworth, uh, one, of oh, the, no one of the scenes. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't know. It's your company. You tell me. And the rest was history. We created a product called Premier Plus. Senior didn't want anybody to know that this was a conventional loan. So the best subprime loan on the matrix was Premier. I said, well, let's just call it Premier Plus. And we'll call it Make Sense Underwriting. But in reality, all it was was all the loan officers and offices would send us scenarios that I had three pe- three people who were processors key in and get an approval. Got it. So you guys, and then boom, we'd send out a pre-approval. We were the most profitable part of that business for eight months, and so that's how I started to transition into cap markets because I had to run the the cap markets side. Right. I was sort of a business within a business. Got it. Got it. Okay. And ran the cap market side of it. Uh, when I sell, I would always sell as a loan officer in the financial markets. This is what rates are doing. This is what you could do. But actually doing it, it started there. Oh, I love that, man. So so this is so 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 for so for listeners who have like they're like, why are they talking all this mortgage speak? Basically, like for a non-mortgage person, you you saw a, a gap in the market that you could take this new technology and and basically take do loans that traditionally you know, just so everyone understands, when you get a mortgage, people just key in your information into a, into a system. They press go, and it goes into another system that says approve or don't approve. And that's what, what Phil's talking about. He's talking about a system that, the system that gave you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It's automated through technology. Back in the day, a human being would read that application, manually decide if it met the rules or not, and would give you a thumbs up or thumbs down based on the rules. So this was a massive change. This is why there's so many more people who are able to buy homes now than, than 20, even 20 years ago, because you have the ability for a computer to make that decision for, for better or for worse. But um, so uh, I, I didn't know that about you. So, so you parlayed that. That was your, your introduction to cap markets. Do you mind explaining for a listener that has no idea what capital markets is? What is capital markets? Well, I mean, I don't even know. What it is. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> no, so, uh, you know, it's, I mean, could I, could I distill it down to it's sort of the, the, the transference of um, the appraisal and transference of money is kind of what I would from my perspective, what it is. Mm. So if you look at it from, say, a, a standpoint of stocks, well, how do we value what a company is worth, right? I may see that value is different than you might see it and so forth. And then how do you and I, you know, in a matter of speaking, wrestle around our perceived value of that company? You might be the buyer of that, the stock within that company. I might be the seller. I think it's worth X. You think it's worth Y. We have this price discovery that occurs within the market to sort of determine that. And that's influenced by uh, current events. Uh, you know, the interpretation. All of this is, is the interpret. in my opinion, the interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation. Mm. You know, it's not a, this gray area of what things are worth 
based on supply and demand, based on market conditions, based on what any individual thinks, feels, or believes at any moment in time. Interesting. And and it's based on commodities, stocks, bonds, a whole host of things. Right. So so um, what's funny is so I got before I was I was in mortgage for a hot minute and then I got out and became became a stock trader. Um, I don't know if you knew that about me. And so I, I, I did not. Know. Yeah, I traded equities for for about a year um, for a, a, a Wall Street firm out of, and they had an office in San Francisco. So that was actually why I moved to San Francisco was to take that job. Um, I didn't. It, it, be, let's put it this way: my third day on the job was nine eleven. So it was not a good time to be a trainee in a stock trading program. <laughs> it was a really bad time. Um, I made no money, uh, which is why I got back into mortgage because I was like selling loans. I was telemarketing loans on the side to, to, to make ends meet. Um, but um, what I heard you just say was essentially like capital markets, there's, there's a market making aspect, right? Where you're, where you're trying to sell the asset and make, you know, bid asks, you know, you're, you're, you're the bid or you're the ask, depending on what you're doing with the asset. And you're trying to find a buyer for the asset and, and maximize profits in the process. Um, so, so you, I, I love that you got into it through sales because that just shows, I mean, how entrepreneurial you are, that you, that you hear you were selling, you see the technology, you then start selling these loans on the secondary market, um, at your, at your, your business. And, and, and the rest, I guess, as they say, is history. Um, and so you ended up, um, working your way into a company that was actually at one point the largest, uh, subprime lender in the United States, the money store. Um, and, and from there MLD, and then from there parlayed that experience into your current role as chief investment officer at, uh, at, at EPM. So, so parlayed that experience into a really big role at, in, 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 into a stakeholder and in, in chief investment officer at EPM. I'd love for you to, to talk about like, like right now, I feel like we're in this, this spot. And I, and I want that one of the biggest reasons I asked you on the show is I love talking economics. I love talking markets and, and, you know, for, for anyone that's listening, we're going to put Phil's uh, social handles in, in, in the show notes, you need to go like follow Phil on social. You, you, you're doing this thing called Mancuso minute right now that we, I want to talk about that in a little bit, but I want to fast forward to, you know, over the last 10 years, you've worked your way into this huge role. Um, and in, into probably one of the fastest growing, you know, lenders in the United States, you know, what do you think when you see right now, the markets as they stand today, when you kind of look back over the last 10 years, what, wh- how are you feeling about what you're, what you're saying? Because I have so many thoughts, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. I, and, and I'm pretty passionate about what my thoughts are. So happy to en- engage on that. Let me give you two bits of information before. So th- the technical definition of capital markets is the part of the financial system concerned with raising capital by dealing in shares, bonds, and other long-term investments. So isn't my definition so much better than that? Way better. And I I say that to sort of segue um, into the answer to your question, because I believe that business and the markets are a living, breathing thing, not a static thing, uh, which sometimes we try to distill it down into. Um, For probably more like the last... 20 years. 
So 2002, if I could start my answer with 2002, as we start using more and more automation as an industry and as um, um, and, you know, just a general society, a business ecosystem, I feel like that we begin to really see, sow the seeds of what you're seeing today. Uh, of the 98 and then 2008 and then 20, you know, 14 and Brexit 16 uh, and then sort of the COVID uh, collapse, which which most people will sort of blame on COVID. I actually called that um, in a, um, a networking, a recorded networking uh, sort of session in August of 18. I said, look, there's going to be a crisis because of driven by the overvaluation of mortgage MSRs and student debt. It just so happened to be that COVID was the match. I believe that was happening in 2020 anyway. Uh, And what I believe we're about to get into here sometime in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, And so what it starts with from my perspective is not in the numbers, not in capital markets, not in anything other than a fundamental understanding of what's driving the world. And I believe that that's information and automation. And what you'll hear me say ad nauseum is that information and automation are wage and price killers. Hmm. So when folks say to me or anyone, rates are low, they're historically low. Uh, Not many people are saying that right now. Everybody's crying about where rates are. But then you'll also hear me say, well, rates are never going up. Right. And again, hard to hear over the last six months because rates have gone up, but, but not in the historical sense. I go back to saying my very first computer cost about $4,000 in $1982. You can go out and buy a computer for $300 today. So in that regard, don't talk to me about inflation, Right. But if we talk about the cost of a watch or a Lamborghini or a house, then maybe there's massive inflation, right? But then again, over the course of a 30-year period, maybe there isn't. I look at it and I say, folks today know more than ever what things cost. Hmm. When they cost that, how they cost that, if they go on sale, and the efficiency in the consumer is breathtaking. Mm. Uh, The example I always use is my grandmother wanted a gallon of milk in 1955. The household didn't have a car. She could, you know, she'd have to walk somewhere, most likely the corner store. If they wanted to make 300% on a gallon of milk, they could. She had no choice. Right. She wasn't going to walk 10 miles for a gallon of milk. Now, if I want a gallon of milk, I boop, beep, bop, boop. I've got a hundred vendors from all over the globe that could deliver that gallon of milk um, and potentially deliver it faster than what it would take me to walk to the corner store. Yeah. Or in today's day and age, get in my car. But even if I get in my car, I could drive an extra five miles faster than she could walk a mile. Amazon now, baby. Right? Like coming right, right at you. Coming right at you, uh, like a freight train. So, <laughs> so, so in that regard, what I believe we've seen materialize over the last 20 years, minus 
a, a period after COVID where, where the supply chain was so disrupted that people were willing to spend some extra money is the shift of the game of chicken between buyers and sellers. Sellers won for a millennia. All of a sudden, the buyers started winning that game of chicken. Wait a second. I'm not going to pay this price because it's going to go on sale in three months. So if you don't have price elasticity, you can't have high interest rates. If you don't have high interest rates, you sort of have this perpetual growth in businesses. That's why the stock market has sort of taken off. Um, so I, I I look at what is happening in the markets from a very basic standpoint. Are people doing better today than they were? Are the prospects of a job better? Is information and automation going away? Um, and how do I trade the market around those very simple terms. So, so let me ask you a question. I, do, I love where you, you've gone with this. So, I had a, a guest on the show uh, who who wrote a book called The Price of Tomorrow, um, which it's it's a bit of a doomsday book, and then he got a lot of national play for this. Smart guy, uh, entrepreneur out of Canada, and he he has, his his thesis is essentially that, and there's truth to what I'm about to say, and I, you you just said it is that technology is is deflationary in nature, right? And, and and so to your point, like I remember when my parents, you know, you know, we're we're close in age, you know, and I'm I'm a Gen Xer, which means that we are of the of the um, generation there that first got VCRs, right? You use the example of the computer, and I'm, I'm going to use the example of VCR. I remember with the VCR, my I think my parents paid. 1800 bucks in like 1983 for a VCR, which in today's dollars is probably like $7,000, right? $6,000. So you, anyone listening, they're like, what's a VCR? They're a millennial. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a thing that you would watch movies on, which was a big deal because you, you could only watch movies at the movie theater. The families then were paying $6,000 in today's term, to, in today's money, to be able to watch movies at home. Whereas today you don't even you spend nineteen bucks a month for unlimited movies, right? Or not even eleven bucks a month. I guess Netflix would love to get nineteen bucks a, a month from you, but but um, so technology is what is deflationary in nature, right? There was a point in time where VCRs were hundred bucks, and then there was a point in time where you get them for like fifty bucks, right? But, but when they first came out, that's what they cost. So he he, he made a couple of points. His point was that a that technology is deflationary in nature, and that Miller's law. Uh, I think it's Miller's law. That's is that the Moore's law? Moore's law, excuse me. The speed of technology it doubles every eighteen months, right? The, the, which it comes from the speed of a microchip, how much it can store, how fast it, it, it computes. And he said, when you combine those things, you get an exponential increase in the speed of technology. And he says most people can't imagine; they, they they don't have the mental like fortitude to really understand what we mean by exponential growth. And he uses the example of you fold a piece of paper fifty times that the 50th time it's the thickness from here to the sun. Right. And, and which is kind of a hard thing to, to fathom because we as humans don't think exponentially. And, and he has a lot of concern that basically like automation, AI, all these things are going to completely get rid of jobs. Like, like the, there's going to be no jobs. Like, like unless you have a very special, like you're cutting hair for a living, right. Or these jobs that are very like uh, bespoke every single time that, that essentially that we're going to have massive deflation. And that was his concern. He's like, look, there's massive deflation coming. 
like like you've never seen before. And and so um, I, I got off the call. I, we did a show and I was like, you know, man, you just made me sick to my stomach because <laughs> he's like stock yeah. market crash, uh, all this stuff. You hear Andrew Yang talk about stuff like this. So these are these are guys who are on the far extreme of some of the stuff you're talking about. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on 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 given what you said and given what I just said, what what does that mean for the inflation of assets? And what does that mean for, for interest rates? Because we're in a time right now where, to your point, short-term interest rates have gone up a lot. The Fed's talking up rates like crazy, trying to you know, crazy. be hawkish. But, I mean, I was on a call yesterday, two days ago, with an investment banker um, who I believe you know as well. And, 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 and it's funny because he was like 10-year 4%, right? And I, and I was like, maybe. And I know you're a 10-year 2, 2.2% guy. So... So yeah. give me your thoughts on, A, the deflationary nature of, uh, do the markets have real risk of deflation? What are your thoughts on that? And then also, like, why do you think that interest rates are low forever? Because I've heard you say that before, and 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 I appreciate it, but I want to understand it better. Yeah. So first things first, I don't think that those thoughts are extreme. I, I frankly think that they are spot on. Uh, you know, questions that I ask is, again, very simple concepts. Um, self-checkout. Why do we have any cashiers anymore, right? If you understand how businesses operate and the efficiency with which they try to um, uh, aspire to, if self-checkout didn't work, they would have abandoned uh, the the experiment. So the existence of self-checkout suggests to me that it works, Right, right? right? The question is, okay, now what's the next step? Why are we afraid to go full self-checkout? Are we concerned about, are there sort of, and I'm not meaning in the Illuminati way, although I have to say, on Instagram, I got a message saying that I'm now in the Illuminati. I've been, I've been invited to the Illuminati. Oh. So I'm excited about nice. that. It's going to be me, me, Jay-Z, and Beyonce. I haven't sent the money You're, you're part of the Clinton uh, cabal. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, or, or the other example I've used is toll collectors. I mean, Easy Pass works, Sun Pass works, right? So why do we have any toll collectors? Um, so I do think we can go very dark very quickly in that regard of there are hundreds of jobs. I don't mean hundreds of individuals, hundreds of jobs that exist today that are already obsolete given current technology. Why we haven't made them obsolete yet is curious. Um, That's the thing where I'm waiting for somebody to maybe wake up. Um, Step two in my maturation, to tie a little bit of a bow on this, in cap markets, came around 2002. Um, I was concerned that Home Depot would wake up one day and say, hey, let's get into mortgages. Because some quant would say, we make 83 cents on every customer. Imagine if we offered all of our customers a mortgage and I could take that from 83 cents to 800 bucks, which would be massively underpricing a mortgage, but obviously parabolically growing their margin per, uh, you know, per, per footstep in, the, in their business. So that's when I said, hey, we've really got, I've got to take the cap markets Uh, for MLD to another level so we can sort of compete and get ahead of the curve. Um, So at the end of the day, part of what drives me in business 
quite frankly, Darius, is not knowing what the heck my kids are going to do for a living in 20 years. Because I think that if you're not a musician, if you're not an athlete, if you're not an artist, if you're not a chef, uh, if you're not an electrician, a plumber, you, you know, a tradesperson, uh, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Um, I mean, heck, there's automation around the obsolescence of bartenders, you, you know, uh, so, so I do think, um, in that regard, I wonder how many jobs will be left in 20 years, uh, which is massively deflationary. Now I had spoken with a supply chain expert that says, and, and we, we, you know, we talked about computers and, and, and VCRs and what, 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 her supposition was, is that we have this insatiable appetite to consume right. here, particularly in the United Specifically, States. Specifically, yeah. Yeah. So we grew up, I grew up with basically one television, one car, later became two cars. I think in our house now we have, I don't know, we have 12 TVs, which in aggregate, you know, roughly cost less than that one TV that we had. Right. And she surmises that we're going to go back to that at some point. Oh, wait, she, thinks, that, wait, she thinks we're going to go back to a less consumption-based economy. Correct. So I have, I have a question for you on this, though. So finish your thought, but let me ask this question because I don't yeah. want to lose this. That's the only way that I'm wrong about zero, 2% interest rates versus 4% interest rates is if we go back to few expensive things. Hmm. Rather than many cheap things. Yeah, you, you told me. This was, this was a woman from Deloitte, right? No, I think it was Goldman, Goldman Sachs, my bad. if I remember. We talked about this at, at dinner a few months ago. But, but okay, so yes. I'm, I'm going to throw, throw a different thought, which maybe, maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you. They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life. Canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, 
all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. So I was in Mexico over the summer. I went there for one month, okay? I lived in Mexico for, for four weeks. And, I, and it was a city I'd been to many times. I got, it was Oaxaca, Mexico. I got married in Oaxaca, Mexico in two, uh, 15 years ago, okay, in October. So, and I'd been there in 2004, which was three years before I got married. I went there in 2007 when I got married. I went there again for my wife's aunt's 50th in 2019, and I went this summer. And I told my wife, I said, it's interesting. I, there's way, people are way more tattooed now than they were before. And I'm going to make a point. And I said, I, I, they were more tattooed than they were three years ago. Like, like everyone was tattooed. And I said, you know what? The world's way smaller with Instagram. People, people see the way, and this is an American thing, right? Where people want to look more like the American pop stars and we kind of are, are the leader of, of cool, right? So I'm going to take, so I took that one data point and I'm going to give you another data point. And I want to hear your thoughts on this. And we have not talked about this because I really am dying to hear what you think. So the other thing that's very American is self-storage. 90% of all self-storage is in the United States. And why is that? To your point earlier, we consume more than we can handle. And people need to put their shit somewhere, right? So if you look, so why, why is that an American, like why would Americans be the only people with self-storage? So I asked myself, so I put those two thoughts together and I said, okay, will the trend go in the direction you're talking about? Or will the trend go in the other direction? Which is if we are exporting American cultural attitudes and beliefs if that is happening through media and now the world's smaller because of the tiktoks of the world and now the world's smaller because of instagrams of the world my actual belief was are we then now i i do believe that an automation of menial jobs will undermine this but let's assume that doesn't undermine it are we will we also export our consumerism to the rest of the world because if we do that 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 goes flies in the face of what that woman thinks what are your thoughts on that yeah, I, look, I think that that's a, a great a great point. One of the things, one of the principles. So I, I have several underlying principles for why I think rates are never going up. One of which is the automation and information being wage and price killers. I have a, I have some interesting wage st- stats that I want to share with you. Um, so I'll put a pin in that. Let's make sure we come back to that. One of the other things that I said was. 
sort of the proliferation of the MTV Cribs era, which now social media is MTV Cribs on steroids. Totally. Okay. Where that, I believe that that was a huge contributor to our consumption. Why? And I've used this as an example. My father growing up in the 50s, Mickey Mantle is his idol, right? His baseball idol. You heard, but you didn't know that Mickey Mantle's hanging out at the Copacabana, you, you know, drinking, you know, champagne and eating fancy dinners, driving around, you know, in a Mercedes or a Cadillac or a Rolls Royce, you know, living in a mansion. You sort of assume these things, you know, you understood what the wealthy in America sort of probably looked like, acted like, lived like, but you didn't, it wasn't in your face. Okay, now all of a sudden you're invited into their living room. Master P with the gold-plated ceilings. And you say to yourself, because this is sort of human nature, why not me? Why does he have that? Why does she have that? And I don't. Well, the simple answer is, is that you don't make $60 million a year (laughs) or whatever. Okay, So, so what I've sort of surmised is... How do I recreate the Mickey Mantle, the Master P, the Kim Kardashian lifestyle? You know, I I don't have the wallet for it, so I pick and choose my spots. It might be an iPhone, which I just bought the new one. I got the purple one. I'm on the plan. So it's 7.57 Eastern. We were in there. We got our phones. But so you, you see, I can only substitute... The my, you know, in generalizations, my lack of wealth on a relative basis to the, the, the elite, the famous, the uber wealthy that I'm watching driving Bugattis and everything. I could just do that by stretching my dollar. Step one of stretching my dollar is just be super cheap. Hey, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to buy on sale and all this other stuff. Um. So I think that that's been a driver in a lot of the deflation over the last 20, 30 years that we've seen. Uh, Is that asking? Why is that? I don't follow. Because the aspiration to a lifestyle that we can't afford on average. So so we we, we hold out. Oh, okay. Okay. To get it. It's that game of chicken. They used to, when we were kids, they used to, you used to be able to do rain checks, right? Where you'd like, right. which I, I don't think anyone, if you, if you weren't bo- like born before like 1985, you have no idea what, what I'm talking about. Where literally I'd go buy something, I'd put it on hold and then wait till I had money to buy it. Right. So same yes. idea, same idea. So the Fed right now is getting killed about saying inflation is transitory. I think that the mistake that they've made is capitulating on that thought. It is transitory. We're already seeing it. We could talk about the analytics around inflation and how about CPI is lagging and imperfect. Uh, But but I want to read to you a a very interesting or an interpretation of a chart that I'm looking at. Uh, And and for those of you that might be interested, there's... uh, it's www.weform.org, and you can find this. It's called A Long-Term View on Wages in the United States. And it's real hourly earnings 
adjusted for CPI. Okay. Uh, or hourly earnings adjusted for CPI, which gives you real earnings adjusted for inflation. So from roughly 1994 to what looks like, uh, excuse me, 1964 to what looks like probably 1968, about a four-year period, real wages went from $20 an hour to $23.24. Again, yeah. it's adjusted. Yeah. That, that wasn't what people were really making. Right, right. Adjusted for inflation. Maybe it was 5 bucks an hour then, but that would be the same as making yeah. 24 bucks an hour now. Exactly right. Okay. Seasonally adjusted, blah, blah. You put all these adjusters on it. So went from 20 bucks an hour, slightly below, to 23.24, February of 73 is actually what it's saying, right? It then goes all the way down to below $20 from a period of roughly like 85 to 95. Okay. We get back up above it. We don't reach 23.24 until March of 2019. Wow. So Darius, I want you to think about this, right? It took us roughly 10 years, eight years, whatever I'm sort of extrapolating from this imperfect chart to see the same growth in real real wages that it took about 40, almost 50 years to experience from 1973 forward, okay? What are the implications in lifestyle? In and that that includes the go-go eighties, for the record, right? Um, the implications of that, um, I think, are massive in terms of how households behaved economically, um, how the the how we consume, um, what. You know, the future looks like we're probably the first generation where our kids don't do better than than the, the previous generation. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, how is, you know, any of this inflationary in nature when you consider, again, real wages in 19 in, excuse me, March 2019, the same as real wages in February 73? The answer is it can't be. And so why did the Fed think inflation was transitory? Why do I think rates are never going up? With the caveat, do we have another supply chain disruption? Do we totally eliminate oil and force gas prices up, right? I don't, um, I don't see it. I, I think what's happening in Europe right now. So if you, I saw a thing this morning saying that they're like the Belgium minister came out and said that the, the next five to 10 years, because of their dependency on Russian oil and because of their dependency on eco-friendly friendly energy are going to be brutal from an energy perspective. So I actually think that that's a great case study for that. The world's not ready to be hundred percent green because when it's winter, wind farms and solar doesn't work. Right. And so you need kind well, of, I mean, heck, they can't, they can't charge their electric cars in California. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. You just took. I was just going to go there next. It was like California. They they just sent out a notice saying don't charge your electric cars. So so I, you know, look like like fossil fuels in a better, more eco friendly format are probably here to stay, but they're not gone. Right to your point. So so yeah, I think that that 
you made a great, I 100% agree with you. I, I have a question though, because what we're talking about here is that real wages have stayed flat for 50 years, more or less down to flat. Right. And, and this is the biggest, this is, this is probably more of a political conversation, which I don't want to get into, which is, oh, well, yeah. the, 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 you know, corporate earnings have never been better. The, 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 the real worker hasn't, has not done better. And there's some societal risks there, right? So it, I mean, we've seen this in Rome and we see this in, you know, Byzantine empire. And you look at these, like if the real, if the average person's not doing better, they sure as hell can't be doing a lot worse or else you're going to have some societal issues. Right. Um, but, but talking about that, you know, I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is if you look at that time frame, especially over the last 20 years, the biggest difference I would say is that you just exported a ton of jobs and essentially exported a recession overseas, right? Through our debt and through our manufacturing, right? And and so if that happened, right, that's how we kept the cost of goods low because China started making more stuff and India started making more stuff and Vietnam started making more stuff. And I'm experiencing this where, you know, I have, been, I have team members in the Philippines that do, do some work for us and I have team members stateside you know, where, where you'll see as more of these jobs move overseas, then their wages go up. And then you start saying, well, shoot, if I'm going to pay this much for overseas, I'll just keep it here in the States. Right. I, I would, I think we're at this really interesting crossroad where we've exported, we've done a geographic arbitrage for wages for the more, you know, repetitive jobs. Right. We've, we have had an exponential increase in technology, which speeds things up. And that's one of the for, driving forces for keeping real wages low. I've heard, and this, so let's just assume that those are the, those, I don't think anyone's going to argue that that's kept real wages low. I have heard that, I heard Elon Musk say his biggest concern for the world, and this is, I've been waiting to ask you this question, is he thinks depopulation. And I, and I heard a guy who has a book out right now, and I'm forgetting the name of it, I'm trying to get him on the show, where basically he's saying that depopulate, you, you saw what happened in Japan. We're seeing it happening in China now because of their one-child policy. That depopulation, people are not having kids. Like, like, like there's tons of people that don't have kids now that would have had kids 20 years ago. That you have a depopulation issue and that that is actually inflationary in nature. And, you couple, and then you couple that with people don't trust just-in-time supply chain like they did pre-COVID and that you may see a huge macro shift back to localized manufacturing with less of a population, and that we actually have inflationary uh, forces at risk here. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, because that flies in the face of some of the stuff we're talking about. Yeah. So it's tough to talk about this without it appearing to be political in nature, right? right? <laughs> so so here's, my, here, here's the El Presidente uh, disclaimer, right? Um, I think the biggest mistake that we make politically uh, because we sort of personally choose a side is discounting that both sides are out for one thing. And that's generally themselves. Power. Okay. Uh, As, as, as Eddie uh, likes, Eddie Perez likes to say, there are no saints in the room. (laughs) So there are no saints in that political room as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, in a lot of ways, I feel like all of this is one big Ponzi scheme. Okay. okay. And so whatever side we're on, 
there is a risk of somebody pulling the, 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 the plug out of the drain, which, which then shifts this conversation massively in, an, in a direction. You know, the, the, I, social media is such a huge component of this conversation in, in, from my purview. It, to take it back to economics for a wait, second. Wait, why, why did you just say that? Why do you think social? Is it because of the decimation of information that people get access to these ideas? I, I think that I think it's sure, a hundred percent. But what ideas? See, because once you're in the algorithm, if you have an idea and I have a similar idea, all I'm going to get is you feeding me my idea and me feeding you your idea. Right. We sort of become brainwashed into thinking either a everybody thinks this way or b. We're, I mean, there's no other answer other than our answer. Right. So it's like a confirmation um, bias to your point. I agree. Yeah. And, and we want to, I feel like we're so quick to want to label everything and everybody. And that's one of the dangers of social media. Um, and you talk about Elon Musk and like one of the things that he said was, you, you know, if you look at one of his memes or whatever the heck you call this stuff is like, you know, he argues he hasn't moved politically. You know, it's just one of the sides have has had a massive shift and he's still where he's been, but it gives the appearance that he's moved to the right or what have you. And so that's one of the ways that I think that how we consume content and what our mindset is, you know, is, is dangerous in regard to how we continue on this path to globalization. I mean, my father owned an embroidery business that ultimately closed because of globalization mm-hmm. uh, and automation. And it was really the combination of those things. The business got moved offshore using cheaper workers and more technology. Right. So that right. was like sort of a double whammy, so to speak. Um, you know... <clears throat> What I'll say about that is in the least political way possible. Um, we have become more independent. My read on what information, whether it be social media or otherwise, has, um, has done to us, our society at large, is we've become more independent. We've also generally become more cynical and skeptical. Okay, so what I think that that's helped to do is it's helped to push sort of procreation a little bit further into the future. Right. And and or sort of, you know, I've made that less the thing to do. You know, I mean, what did you do 50 years ago? You got married, you had two point three kids, a dog, a white picket fence. That that those ideals don't, you know, don't have as as many as much legs as as it used to. So, do you think? Do you think it's because of of, of the, well, going back to your comment before that real wages have been flat and it costs way more money to have kids? Hundred percent. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's an economic I, I, issue. I do think that we are more selfish as a society, you know, and I've said that. I, that was that, and that that sort of completes that Master P gold plated ceiling Mickey Mantle thought. 
is I think on balance as individuals, we're a bit more selfish, that why isn't it me sort of thing. Right. And so if you delay consumption, if you delay having kids, if you delay being married, you can have more. That is absolutely an underlying component of it, in my opinion. Now, whether we've been groomed to think that way, and that's where you could go dark on this, or whether that's just been sort of the unintended consequence. Some people blame Mr. Rogers. You know, everybody's special. I'm special. You, you know, they blame him for <laughs> setting us on this course. Not, not, not like when we were kids. Oh, actually, he was big when we were kids. But maybe, maybe, maybe our parents, we were latchkey kids. So we, we were watching stuff by ourselves. The next generation got the participation trophies. I think we were the last generation to, to, to deal with corporal punishment. That's that we got to bring back corporal punishment because that'll fix all of this. <laughs> It'll fix, you know, hey, a, a, a good fresh one. There's, there's, there's no substitute for it. Watch your mouth or I'll smack it. <laughs> um, so, so sorry, finish your thought. Yeah. So, uh, I, I deal in, so to talk about cap markets, there's no absolutes. No one knows absolutely what is going to happen. Uh, but from a probability standpoint, um, I think the idea of we're going to become more European in our consumption mm-hmm. rather than the vice versa that you present, I think that's a less likely outcome. That's number one. Less likely that we number, be, less likely that we become more European, or less likely that we that that everyone else becomes Americans. That we become European. I one hundred percent agree. I think everyone else becomes okay. Americans. So now here's the question: Let there's a difference between a slowdown in the growth of population and an absolute outright depopulation. Sure, okay. So again, I think that depopulation is a potential outcome, but a less likely one, okay? Okay? So now you say, all right, if we're more likely to consume globally like Americans consume, if we are less likely to depopulate, if we are more likely that information and automation continue to proliferate, then that is deflationary. Period. Deflationary because uh, I understand the uh, if population does not fall off, if the rest of the world consumes per capita like Americans. When you look at these numbers, by the way, we consume like three three times three x everyone else per capita. For one of us, yes. we buy three times the amount of shit that other people buy. So if everyone else starts buying two or three times what they're currently buying, how is that deflationary? Because that's demand that that increases demand because we don't have the money. So. So uh, let's let let's go back to that chart and what we're this begins to sort of complete my thesis. Yeah. So the Fed says inflation is transitory. Why? Because they know what I know, right? Or knew what 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 I know or what I surmise, if you will. Which is, if you look back, nineteen ninety, you, you look back ninety four, you look back. Uh, um, early 2000s, late 90s, you look back, you know, through 95 uh, and, 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 and up through COVID stimulus. Our booms for the last 30, maybe even 
50 years if you believe that chart versus the 50, 60 years that preceded it in America, in the industrialization expansion of the United States, first expansion, then industrialization of the United States. Those booms were driven by wages, were driven by earned sustainable income, you know, save the, the depression. Okay. Sure. Um, so I made a dollar yesterday. I made a dollar 10 today. I can spend it. I have real disposable income and I'm optimistic about the future. Our country is growing. Our economy is growing. I'm likely to make a dollar 20 tomorrow. So I'm going to get that house. I'm going to get that car. And I'm going to, and we, you know, in some respects, fake it till I make it sort of thing. That's sort of how we behaved for the first, you know, four, five, six decades of the 20th century. And then all of a sudden, here comes automation. Not in the way we know it, but it started right. in the 60s, right? So now my dollar doesn't go as far. What created the booms? Well, number one, more money was inherited in the early 90s than at any point in the history of the United States. Pop. Dot-com boom. Housing bubble. Intra-year tax cuts. COVID stimulus. Guys laugh at me a little bit. I'm on a couple message boards and we are not there. We're affectionately calling this the Gucci uh, um, index. So when I moved down here to Florida, uh, there's there's a mall in Orlando called the Millennium Mall. Really interesting mall. It has the highest of the high end, and then just sort of like your you know everyday mall. So you know you got your Gaps and your this and that, and then you have Hermes and Chanel and and so on. And in between, you kind of have Gucci. We moved down here, and, and dude, there's a line, not out the door, but almost out the mall for the Gucci store. Hmm. And what's the correlation to that? COVID stimulus. Okay? Right. Well, guess- well, hold on. What you just said, and I, I, want, I don't want to uh, undermine this, but when you go back to what you were saying before, 1950s, I, I'm making a buck 10 versus a buck 20, and I am, I'm, I'm optimistic. I was going to say, and you just pointed this out right now, and I want to tie those two together, was we saw that happen the second people got stimulus checks, was everyone started buying like crazy because they had an extra dollar. And I will tell you this, and you may have seen this in the business that you, you've owned and ran. I, was, I, I did not realize how many people live paycheck to paycheck until I had a large, I, I had a thousand employees and I started seeing it when, if we had, you know, like we moved the pay period to a Monday or something, the, the uproar. And I was just doing it because it was like an administrative thing that made sense or, or that our pay fell up because of the calendar, not, not, not like to do it in a bad way. And I was like, this is crazy. And then I noticed the minute I would give anybody a raise, these are people that are not making a lot of money. These are people maybe going from 50 to $60,000 a year, right? This is not someone that that's super wealthy. Right away, they went from a Honda to a Beamer. And I was like, what the fuck? I remember thinking this. I'm a guy driving a Volvo. I'm the CEO of the company. And I'm seeing my $60,000 a year employee driving a car more expensive than mine. And so I remember talking to Ali, my business partner, who you know. And I said, wow, man, people spend every cent they make. And people will spend every Everyone. cent they make and then some. So sorry, you just like set that off. Yeah. 
No. So, dude, it's 100%. So now, fast forward to six months ago, okay? About a year later, no line, none. It's gone. You know, you talk, we were talking about interests and so on. Watches are one of my interests. Go on, you know, go on Twitter and just sort of, you know, uh, or Instagram probably better and just like sort of search Rolex and consume some Rolex Patek Philippe or Richard Meal content, right? You know, and I know that, you know, people are like, well, who the hell buys a million dollar watch? I get it. But uh, probably the gold standard for my example is a Richard Meal makes this Bubba Watson watch, which Bubba Watson, the golfer, could wear on the golf course, one of the longest hitters, and it can it could withstand all those G-forces, right? And it's made from carbon fiber. Retail price on that was about $108,000. Those watches were going for a half a million dollars as recently as March or April. They are down below three fifty dollars now. Still ridiculous, right? But that's how quickly it's happened. Why? Bitcoin, all the Bitcoin billionaires, crypto goes to shit. They were all on margin. I talked about that four months ago. I was like, what happens when all these guys who are trading stuff on margin start getting called? Right. They were, and, and so I want to talk about that, about what's driven this current economy as well, as I have an opinion on that. But when, when, when you consider... If you understand the economy, and I keep saying the Fed is treating the symptom and not the cause, and why they called inflation transitory, but now they've capitulated on that, is because they understand that all of our bubbles have been driven by transitory um, situations. Inheritance, low rates, a surge in housing, a surge in stocks, intra-year tax cuts, stimulus. Okay. The difference in those things and wages is wages persist. Those things, when the money's gone, it's gone. Either when you spend it or when it goes down, when it's gone, it's gone. And so the wealth gap, okay, when COVID hit and I sent an email to the, to the company, um, it was either the May report for April or the June jobs report for May. I don't remember. But I sent an email to the company and I said, this is going to be a skewed K recovery. And and what I meant by that was, and I'm not using scientific numbers here, so just indulge me for a minute. But you have the so-called 1%. Coming into covid universally is we called it sort of the 1%. And so let's say 1% of the population, you know, was making over 400 grand a year, whatever the number is that we use. Right. And let's just say 20% of the population was really struggling uh, in the U S economy. What I surmised would happen. And I would argue has absolutely been the outcome. What I said was the 1%, is going to come become about 10 or 15%. Mm. And the 20% is going to become 30 or 40%. What we've done is we've consistently squeezed out the middle class, the so-called middle class. Right. Okay. 
So I believe what we have right now is the 1% has become 10 or 20%. The bottom 20s become 30 or 40%. That middle percentage, whatever that might be, when you do the math, 40%, 30%, 50%, they're in a slightly worse position than they've been, especially and absolutely if their house or their 401k has gotten hit. Maybe less so if it hasn't. Um, And I believe what the market and the Fed is being tricked by is by the 20% or that 10, 15%. Because ultimately, they're not the ones that have ever moved our economy. You know, it's sort of the so-called rank and file. It's the everyday American that moves the economy. You know, it's okay. So you bought a slightly nicer house, a slightly bigger yacht a slightly more expensive watch that makes that blows the numbers out, but that doesn't create real sustainable inflation. You know, one of the guys, Adam Quinones, like we affectionately call him AQ, like he and I will sort of argue, he insists that there have been demand pull inflation, which means demand has brought up prices. I am not sold on that because demand of what half the output, that's not real demand. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing that I admittedly got wrong was I thought that the cheapness, and I've called this, it became chic to be cheap. In the 80s, it was like, oh, guess how much I paid for this Rolex? Uh-huh, that'd be this Mercedes. Then it become, oh, guess how much I paid for this? It became chic to be cheap. I thought that that was with us forever. And just the convergence of the sort of Kardashian internet and no supply got people keeping up with the Joneses a bit more than I thought would happen, Mm -hmm. admittedly. Um, But there's a limit to that. And we've seen that. We've seen what's happened to every metric. It's dry. We are seeing, I believe... Massive deflation in a lot of asset classes right now that we're being fooled by saying, well, because we started hot. I don't know what that means. Lower is lower. Yep. So so on that note, and I, I know we're, we're I, I, I scheduled 90 minutes with you because I knew we'd be, we would be talking a lot. <laughs> but we got, we got about 10 or 15 minutes left in the show. Um, I, wanted, I, I do want to kind of hit on like where we're at right now, right? So you're talking a lot about the Fed getting it wrong. You're perpetually out there on the Mancuso Minute saying rate, perpetually, you know, rates are low forever, right? So I'd love, you know, right now, 10 years, what, 331, you know, six month, six month your treasuries are in the threes. You know, we have this spike. The Fed's talking up interest rates. I'd love to hear where you think rates are at 12 months from now and why and where you think the markets are at 12 months from, from now and why. I am absolutely resolute in thinking that there is going to be a first, a Q123 rate cut. Whoa, really? Okay. I am, I, I, it would be February if there was a meeting in February. I don't necessarily, I mean, at times they will do an intra meeting rate cut. So maybe it's March. Um, there are a lot of different reasons. Too many, really. So I'm going to oversimplify it here. Not the least of which is understanding, and I have this on my slogan, that figures lie and liars figure. Okay? 
understanding how the data works. Now, number one, we know that prices started to massively appreciate around this time last year. So one of the reasons we have 9% inflation, let me just digress for one second. Rick Santelli, who I watch, I generally don't love CNBC. Uh, I used to just keep it running on mute and then I'd see Rick come on and I'd listen. And he brought up one time, and I've said this before, there's like sort of almost no such thing as a wrong call. It's a matter of time. So this chart's a buy, this chart's a sell, this chart's a buy, this chart's a sell, sort of, right? So um, is there inflation? Is there not inflation? Is there deflation? I, I don't know. What, what period of time are we talking about? That That is part of why it's so difficult to get it right, or when you're right, maybe you're wrong, or when you're wrong, maybe you're right. So if prices started going up last year, okay, um, well, then of course we're at 9% inflation year over year. Right. If we started from zero and we're here, of course prices look gaudy. But what I was talking about in one of the one-on-ones I was with yesterday, on yesterday with some of our brokers it was sort of like I'm in the process of starting to sell my house in New Jersey. We're definitely here permanently. I haven't been up there. I haven't been in the house since we moved down here. But I will likely sell that house for less than it was worth in 2005. Still. Still. In real dollars? In real, in notional real dollars. Gotcha. Okay. Adjusted for the renovations I did and everything. I will lose money on that house. Okay. Okay. But let's just say it's worth 20% more than it was last year. What does that really mean? Let's take the house I bought here in Florida. I paid 20% less than the last two owners. Okay. Let's just say for argument's sake, it's worth 20, it's worth 40% more now. That's what sort of Zillow would have me believe. By the way, it's it's worth much more than what Zillow is saying because we did a renovation and I probably won't get my money back 100% on everything I did there too. So all of this is a bunch of funny business, funny baloney anyway. Um, uh, but, but, but anyway, let's just say that it's worth 40% more than, it, than I paid for it. Well, that's just from my purview. Let's say the original owner still had it. So now it's only worth 20% more than it was worth in like 2012. Well, in 10 years, 20% is, we'd expect it to be worth more than that. Way more. Should be worth 30, 40% more. So part of this notion that there's massive inflation right now and why I say the Fed is off sides is because it's, it's old news. And we started from zero. Okay. So now you look at it and you say, what's the cost of lumber? Lumber went through the roof. It's back down to pre-COVID levels. Right. What are we doing about that? What are we talking about? Why would elevated new home prices persist if the supplies that go into building that home have come back to, to earth? They probably won't. Right. I think I saw a stat saying that 90% of the houses that are being sold right now 
are, are, are going for under ask. Oh, under ask. So already under ask. And the other thing that, I, that I'm seeing and for listeners that you may do this, if you're trying to buy a house is, or they're keeping it the price that the, the, and then they're giving credits towards the lending because of the lending environment, which is, which is a, right. it's a hidden way of lowering the price essentially. Right. So, yeah. Gas has come down massively, but like, you know, I think we get obsessed with the price of gas because I paid less in 2008 than I'm paying now. And I paid more in 2003 than I paid yesterday. You know, that's, that's sort of an artificial thing that I feel like at times we put a bit too much weight on. Um, I feel like that other than in times of extreme, it, it has a more incremental impact on the price of things than we sort of give it credit for. Right. Um, so at the end of the day, the Fed should have raised last August. Right. Should be arguably easing now, or at least neutral. We're tightening in an inarguable recession by, by historical standards. If you look at, aside from seasonal adjusters and the fact that I don't completely believe any of these numbers, not because they're made up, but just because of how they're, you know, calculated and and correlated. Um, But the, the ISM reports in Q2 and early Q3 have largely been not great. I'll say it that way. Uh, This ISM services was okay this week. So I would almost argue that we're probably looking at a negative third quarter. And then my question then becomes, and here's where they're, hey, this is probability, not not, not a definite or what have you, is if we do experience three negative quarters in a row, does Q4 become negative just because the first three were? Hmm. And it's like, well, holy, holy shit, we're in a recession. I better not spend. Um. And what I've observed is the seasonality of interest rates on an intra-year basis. Usually rates start coming down in December around that Fed meeting when they kind of have a little bit of an oh shit moment. Because Christmas season, I put a lot of weight on Christmas. And what I look at in terms of an underlying economy, if you were only going to spend money one time a year and you celebrated Christmas, it'd be Christmas because you want your kids to be happy. And so when Christmas season doesn't go as we've expected, which has pretty much been the last 20 Christmases, what is that really telling me about the the consumer? Yeah, I love it, man. So 10 year, 12 months from now, two point, is it in the twos? Yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's for sure in the twos. Uh, my number has been 225. That's sort of my bogey. Would not be shocked if we were sub two. I think we're in real trouble, dude. Real trouble, okay? Because, um, again, uh, the internet, the efficiency of it. Why would you pay? If, if you know that something was worth less today than it was yesterday, why wouldn't you wait? The same way, like this inflation that we've had, you know, it was sort of speculative and it was like, well, you know, it wasn't that I'm willing to pay more. I believe that this started not with, 
I've got boatloads of money and I'm going to spend it. That's what real inflation is, is when you don't value your money. I just want it. Fuck it. I don't care what it costs. It started with, I'm afraid that it's going to be worth more tomorrow. Mm. Boom. I want it. Now it's ending with, I'm afraid it's going to be worth less tomorrow. Yeah. Which that, so, that by itself is deflationary ideology, right? Like people believing that they're, that is going to hold off on demand. And to your point, yes. that'll, that microeconomics, demand goes down, supply stays pres- up or flat, price goes down. I am Darius. So strategically, and I don't do my own stocks other than I have like a stash account that I have a couple bucks in that I'll play with. Uh, it's a pretty neat app if you've never used it. I mean, it's like, you know, it's cool. Oh, Stash is and the name of the app. Okay, got it. Stash, stash is the name. Yeah, it, well, because it's a Stash. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so my guy, Frank, I mean, we're, we're he's already started to pull back. We're going to probably pull back further here this month just to let things marinate a little bit, right? And then go back into stocks at the end of the year. Um, but for me... I am a holder or a seller right now of almost everything except housing. And I'm going to tell you why. And here is where, you know, money, David Lee Roth said, money can't buy you happiness, but it could buy you a boat to pull you up right alongside of it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I, we, we have this slogan, hashtag lives, not loans. And I've sort of even taken that a bit of a step further when I said it's called, um, you know, homes, not houses. Right. Right. Home ownership, not house yeah. ownership. A, a home is way different than a house, to your point. That's a home is way home. different than a house. You can't put a price on on your happiness. We don't know how long we have left. You know, my father, as I said, owned a business and it was great until it wasn't. And for a long time, it wasn't. And always talked about retirement, always talked about tomorrow. And he never got to see that tomorrow. Okay. And so that really, look, you can't sell out your future for today. I'm not advocating that either. But what I am going to say is I live for today and I live for being happy. I live for my family. I live for my kids. And, you know, I've really been beating this drum about using social media to sell housing, to get people to understand when they wait what they're missing out on, what, what, th- th- that, th- that, that holiday morning, that Thanksgiving dinner, that um, backyard barbecue, that throwing the baseball or the football, or we live on a golf course right now, you know, being able to go out at five o'clock with Thomas, uh, you know, and hit a couple balls, or even though Nick's not a golfer, he plays baseball, you know, watching him go out and hit a 350-yard bomb if he happens to catch it on the club face. And we start, I started doing that content on Saturday mornings. And on the weekend, we're doing golf content. I get like 12, 15,000 views on my golf content in the first hour because people like, you know, hitting bombs. 
So we're going to do Bomb Squad Baseball and Bomb Squad Golf. I love just it. go out there because we have a lot of pros that belong here and just like do videos and like I walk around and we're like, choo, choo. <laughs> and, and so it's sort of like, even though I do think it's likely that your house will be worth slightly less tomorrow than it's worth today, why put it off? If you're not happy where you're living right now, or you would be happier elsewhere, fuck it, fuck it. Dude, don't talk, the, the shame of 2008, the criminality of 2008, in my opinion, was all those strategic defaults, right? And I argue your house is worth, your, 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 excuse me, your car is worth less the moment you drive it off the lot, other than in, during insane COVID where used cars are going for more. Your credit card debt, there's no collateral there. You know, people are having difficulty monetizing their education. I'd argue that that's, you know, that's sort of wasted money. So does he, could you monetize those dollars better? Um, why are we obsessed with the monetization of our home? Sure, an investment property, I get it. Start living your life today. Live it to the fullest. Live it like it's your last one. We make those pizzas in the backyard or Thomas helps me pick out a bottle of wine. We have friends over or tonight we're going to the lounge, uh, you know, with friends and bring a bottle of wine. That's what we do it for. You know, my buddies, I hadn't seen them in a year and a half. They came down here. We're out there drinking high noons, hanging out by the pool, drinking uh, uh, Kona Big Waves, which is my favorite. It doesn't have to be expensive, by the way. You know, it's just just making hamburgers and drinking beers. Yeah, man. I couldn't do that in New Jersey as as, as fun as we did it here because of the weather. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. Like ending on the home ownership tip, uh, man. What, what, I mean, what a pleasure having you, Phil. I mean, I'm telling you, man, I, I knew we would get to go down some cool rabbit holes and, and I had high expectations, but, but you exceeded my expectations, which, which are tough to do. So thanks man so much. Um, look, you have some really cool stuff going on on social. Um, where can people connect with you if they want to learn more about like the markets, because you have the Mancuso minute that you put out every day, you're putting out a ton of stuff on golf. We didn't even talk about golf. Like Phil's Phil's in it with some of the most amazing golf pros in the world. Um, but you have some really interesting content and, and pizzas and, and, and galore. I mean, we could go on, we could have done a three hour show talking about all that stuff, but, but maybe, maybe we'll do another show, but yeah, where can people connect with you if they want to see some of the content you're putting out? I think the big one, and we've really put a focus on Instagram. So where, where you get to see sort of the most content, the most diverse content from me is on Instagram, El Presidente underscore EPM. We do some content on LinkedIn, of course. That tends to be more uh, business-like. Although I'll, I'll 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 post a picture of a steak in a David Lee Roth ly- a Van Halen lyric, uh, and that that gets some good traction because I'll try to tie it in with t- current events. So on LinkedIn, it's just you know whatever Phil Mancuso you can find me. Um, uh, we're gonna start doing TikToks, and you know I'm gonna really branch out. I'm gonna be doing wine cigars, golf, because you mentioned we have Patrick Reed and Sam Horsfield, and I'm friends with a bunch of others, you, you know, when he's around Danny Willett or Charles Howell III, uh, DA Points, 
a bunch of other guys. Uh, so we're going to be doing some real con- fun content. I'm a big Yankee fan. We did something from the trop. We went to go watch a Yankee game. I'll be doing stuff with the kids, like I said, with the hitting bombs on the golf course and on the baseball field. And I'm going to be doing stuff with Max, my dog, because uh, who doesn't love dogs other than maybe cat lovers? Uh, probably do some stuff with my wife. Um, relationships are the I, I joked when I moved down here, I'm bringing 1984 back. Oh, I love it. You know, I want relationships have always driven my career and my business. And, and why should now be any different? On that note, you guys go hug your kids, go drink some beers, eat some pizza, hang out, make your house into a home and go follow El Presidente underscore EPM because I'm telling you, Phil's content is fucking nails. Um, Phil, Mr. El Presidente, what a pleasure having you, my friend. And question everything. Yes. I witness economics. (laughs) You know, know, just don't believe everything you see. Go to the mall and ask, how's things going? Yeah, I love it, man. Thank you so much for being on the show, Phil. Appreciate you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. All right. Peace out, everybody. Till next time. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode, you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. 
as long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast, or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.